Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. All right, let's get to it. So glad that you're here today, and I love to hear the buzz of community going on here, and we get the privilege of not only speaking with God this morning as we've sung together, but we get to listen to the Lord through His Scripture, and then we get to be invited to the table of the Lord as we uh, take communion here in just a few minutes, we prepare our hearts. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to our church? Implied in that question is the idea that we've got to listen. We've got to be trying to listen and to hear what the Lord wants to say to us. In fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I'm a words guy. So the word audio and the word obey sound very similar because they come from the same root word in English. Same thing in Hebrew. The, the word for hear and the word for obedience are tied to one another. The idea is that when Moses gave the command, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, it's not just to hear it and to say, oh, isn't that interesting? It's to hear it, to hear the audio and then obey, to actually do something different as a result. And so when we ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit saying to our church? This is not about curiosity. This is about commitment. This is about what is the Holy Spirit saying? Okay, now let's do that. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to our church? Worship God wholeheartedly. Worship God wholeheartedly. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, Older Testament today. While you're turning there, I want to take you across the pond to London, England. Every year in London, England, they have a conference, and it's called the Boring Conference. Now, how many of you just hearing that name, you want to go to London, England now? Let's get on a plane. Let's go, okay? The Boring Conference is held every year. It's a one-day event. Here's what their website says. It's a one-day celebration of the mundane, the ordinary, the obvious, the overlooked. The conference now in its fifth year is often considered trivial or pointless, but when people make presentations at the Boring Conference, it actually turns out to be fascinating. So if you were to go to the Boring Conference, which I'm committed now to go, there's going to be 20 speakers in the course of one day. Each has a 10-minute slot to address items that other people find boring, but that they themselves find fascinating because it's often been overlooked. Previous talks include the topics of sneezing, toast, sounds made by vending machines, barcodes, inkjet printers, ice cream van chimes, German film titles, and the similarities between 198 of the world's national anthems, all riveting subjects. Now let me do the poll again. How many of you want to go to the Boring Conference with me this next year? Because something might look boring on the surface, but actually after you give it a closer look, after you reconsider it, there's something fascinating about it. So here's our greatest challenge in worshiping God wholeheartedly. Forgive me for just speaking plainly this morning. Many times we're bored with what we do in worship, and this sounds like heresy, we're bored with God Himself. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud, but I think I'm articulating what many people who especially who have grown up in the church, we hear about Jesus dying for our sins and loving us, and we go, yeah, I've heard that before. And so many times we're bored with what we do when we gather here for corporate worship, and we're also, even though you might not ever admit it, we're a little bit bored with God. But both 
deserve a closer look because once you understand what we're actually doing here and who God is, it's fascinating. And I want to give us two characteristics this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 6 on how we should approach God and how we should not, not depart from God. But once we've been with God, what does life look like in the wake of that? Two characteristics of worship that I believe will deepen our appreciation and help us to understand what it means to worship God wholeheartedly. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're just going to walk through this chapter this morning. Just to set this up, David lived a thousand years before Jesus. Anytime you see David in the Bible, you just know that's a millennia before Jesus, okay? David also was the second king of Israel. He was consolidating power. He'd already been king for seven years, but now he was moving the capital to Jerusalem. And on top of that, he wanted it not only to be the center of political power, he wanted it to be the epicenter of religious activity. And so moving the ark, you know, the ark of the covenant that Moses created as the Israelites were in the desert, that represented the presence of God, he was going to bring that into Jerusalem so there would be one place for all the tribes to come for their political and religious needs. So David comes to moving the ark. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David again brought together all the able men of Israel. Boy, there's pomp and circumstance to this, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name Hashem, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherub on the ark. Listen to this next part. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Let me stop here for just a moment. David is worshiping the right God just in the wrong way. There were some very specific instructions about how one moves the ark from place to place. You don't put it on a cart. If you know the earlier story, that's what the Philistines did when they didn't know what to do with the ark. They put it on a cart. In other words, Israel was kind of copying what they saw other people doing, but God was very clear. You don't put the ark on a cart. It has rings on the side, and through these rings you place poles, and not just anybody, not just somebody's kids, but priests must carry the ark with the poles. How many of you are envisioning Indiana Jones right now? Actually, that's a pretty good picture of the ark. They got, it, they got it right there, okay? But you don't put it on a cart. A priest carries it on poles. So David is being careless in the way that he handles God. And here's probably the most troubling thing. And I stopped right there. You might want to underline this. They were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. David was guiding the ark. The ark is not something you guide. The ark is something that guides you. The ark of the covenant, when it was in the desert with Moses, wherever the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud went, there the ark went, and the people followed behind the ark. And now David and his men are basically telling God where to, where to go and what to do. There's a lack of something here, and we'll come to that word here in just a moment. So they were guiding the new ark, uh, guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it, and David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, pretty much the orchestra behind me. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. 
Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. One of the things we need when it comes to worshiping God wholeheartedly is reverence. Reverence. And I'm not talking about a pretend reverence, that, oh, we have to approach God with sober-looking faces and our hands clasped like this. We approach God with a sense of reverence in our heart. And let me just do some simple application. David ignored the simple commands on how to deal with the ark. It was all there in front of him. He had access to all these commands. Carry it by priest with poles. He decided not to do that. Listen, most of the commands of God are pretty simple. And we ignore them to our own destruction. And so we should not expect to have this rich worshiping relationship with God if we're not doing the very basic things of what He tells us to do. For instance, we can't come and worship God if we're committing adultery. We can't come and worship God with a whole heart if we're looking at pornography. We can't come and worship God with our whole heart if in our business we are stealing and cheating and robbing people. We cannot come and expect to worship God wholeheartedly if we're lying to our family. These are all just… it's kind of like the top ten list, right? All of these things are pretty simple, and they're right in front of us. And so, if you say, you know, I don't get much out of a worshiping relationship with God, the first stop is not to look at what happens here, but to look at what's happening here. And to spend time in saying, am I showing reverence for God in the way that I live? And as I approach Him, because here's the deal, most of us have a cart that's called our life, and we have it filled with all the things we want. And we got to make God's ark, we kind of want to kind of make it fit in there somewhere. I'm going to create a new word. We want to tetris it in. We want to kind of fit it in. And maybe it will and maybe it won't. Maybe it should ride on top. God doesn't belong in our cart. He belongs out in front. And so there's a sense if we want to worship God wholeheartedly, we must approach Him with reverence. God, You tell me who to be, and You tell me where to go. And as I hear, I will obey. So we approach God with reverence. Let's continue reading on. Verse 8, and David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. To this place it's called Perez Uzzah, to, to break out against him. David was also afraid of the Lord that day. So I want to read you something that's pretty funny. I had a friend of mine send me this. It's a textbook on thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. Raise your hand if you know more than just the words, what thermodynamics and statistical mechanics is. Raise your hand. You're a lot smarter than me. So this is a textbook for really smart people, okay? And here's how it opens. Here's the opening sentence. Ludwig Boltzmann, who spent much of his life studying statistical mechanics, died in 1906 by his own hand. Paul Ernfurt carried on the work, dying by his own hand in 1933. Now it's our turn to study statistical mechanics. That's the worst opening to a textbook ever. And I don't want to make light of suicide because it's such my own family, but here, you know, this guy studied, he killed himself. This guy, he killed himself. Now it's your turn. Yeah. Worst opening to a book ever. That had to be what David was feeling. Here Uzzah was carrying the ark. It killed him. I don't want to be next. I got to get some distance between me and the ark. Well, look what happens. And he was probably angry at himself, afraid of God. Verse 9, verse 10, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. 
And the Lord blessed him and his entire house. Something happened. His crops were fuller. His cattle, his sheep, they were more productive. Everything around him was being blessed. And David had paused to think, maybe I was worshiping the right God, but with a lack of reverence. So what would happen if I approach God with reverence? What would worship then look like? Oh, here, what follows here is some really good characteristics of how worship should look and one of the things that we get as a result. So David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. I'm sure Obed-Edom was sorry to see it go. When those who were carrying the ark of God had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Let's stop right here for just a moment. I've been to the home of Obed-Edom. If you've gone with me to Israel, Kiriath-Jerim is where this was. And between this spot and Jerusalem was a seven-mile trek. Now, that's not a big deal on foot, but imagine carrying the ark and every one, two, three, four, five, six steps, you stop and make a sacrifice. And then you do one, two, three, four, five, six, another sacrifice. Can you imagine how long it would take to get seven miles? That would take a long time. Can you hear all the kids in the caravan going, are we there yet? Okay. It would take forever. So why does David do this? Very simple. This goes back to creation. God took six days to create, one day to rest. By worshiping God appropriately, this is the rhythm of life. This is the pace of life. We need worship. We need to be in the presence of God because life wears us out and wears us down. So here's the rhythm that we are designed. It's in us that we are to work and to strive for six days. And then one day out of the seven, we rest and we worship. If ever we get to the point that we don't see that as a need, there's a word for that. It's called pride. Says, I can do life by my own power. The trouble is, you can't. So here's a little story. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Lillian Guild, you don't know her name, but good resource. She tells an amazing story on occasion when she and her husband were driving along and happened to notice a luxury vehicle on the side of the road, hood up. The driver appeared perplexed and agitated, and Miss Gild and her husband, they pulled over to see if they could offer assistance. Good people. The stranded driver hastily and somewhat sheepishly explained that he had known when he left home his tank of fuel was rather low, but he was in a great hurry to get to an important business meeting, so he had not taken time to fill up the tank. So this luxury vehicle needed nothing more than refueling. So the guilds happened to have a spare gallon of fuel with them, and so they emptied it into the thirsty luxury vehicle and told the driver that a service station was just two miles down the road. Thanking them profusely, he sped off. Twelve miles later, they saw the same car hood up, stranded on the side of the road. The same driver, no less bemused than the first time, was even more agitated he was grateful that they pulled over again, and you guessed it, he was in such a hurry for his business meeting that he decided to skip the service station and press on with the dim hope that the gallon he had received would get him to that destination. I'm just quoting here. 
It's hard to believe anyone would be that stupid. Is it really? (laughs) Not in this day and time. It's hard to believe anyone would be that stupid until you remember that's exactly how many of us are going through the business of Christian living. We are so busy pressing on to the next item of our agenda that we choose not to pause for fuel. Sadly, Christian leaders are among the worst offenders. We are faced with constant and urgent demands and we find it easier to neglect the God who serves us for our own busyness. If you're tired, the first thing you need, and perhaps the only thing you need, is to stop and worship God and to remember you are not the center of the universe, He is, and to remember that He has strength and courage and resource that you cannot possibly even imagine. And so six steps, they sacrificed, they waited. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. I want to stop and explore verse 14 because there's a lot of great little nuggets here. He was wearing a linen ephod. So I imagine the first time that they started moving the ark, David was dressed in all of his regalia as a king. But here, he had put all that aside. This was not about a show of power. He was now humbled, and he put on a linen ephod, which was just a simple garment, what a commoner would wear. Now, you can read the end of the story. Some people criticized him for doing that, but he wasn't a king before God. He was just a person. And his worship took on simplicity. I want to talk to you very candidly about what we do here on Sunday morning because I I know sometimes you think, you know, we do the same thing every Sunday. We sing and we listen to a sermon and, you know, what does all this mean? Why are we doing the same thing over and over again? Can I confess to you that I want to design worship that is deliberately not entertaining because I believe we can get entertainment everywhere and anywhere. What we need is engagement. And I want you to know what we do in worship is pretty simple, really. But actually, this is the the method behind the madness. I probably shouldn't call it madness. These words are just kind of coming out right now. But there's a method to what we do. It's not about being entertaining because I don't want to every week trying to be more entertaining than the week before. I would rather offer you an opportunity to be engaged. Do you realize that when we gather together and we sing, singing gives us the opportunity to pray the same thing to God at the same time? All that is, that's an opportunity for us to say some things to God that we need to say. And then as we open the Scripture and study it together, hopefully we're hearing what God has to say to us. All worship is is just a conversation. It should be simple, and we might miss that if we're not careful. In it, we dedicate babies. We give offerings. We see people be baptized. We explore and we experience those transitions of life together in community, and we thank God for what He's doing. Worship is very simple. I think we've made it too complicated. And notice this about David. It says that he was wearing linen ephod. There's a couple of phrases here. He was dancing. Nobody get any ideas this morning. But here's the next two phrases. Before the Lord with all his might. If you want to know how we should worship, that's it. We worship before the Lord with all of his might. Now, when it comes to worshiping before the Lord, let's talk about this for just a minute because we all have different worship languages. 
In fact, I'll let you read this some other time, but it's Second Chronicles 20, verses 18 and 19. Jehoshaphat the king is leading his people in worship, and as he leads in worship, he is kneeling down. That is his posture of worship. That is what he needs to do to express his need before God. But the priests with him, standing just a stone's throw away, they are lifting their hands before God. So which one is right? The more expressive or the more intimate? The answer is yes. You need to understand your own worship language and your own worship style. Some of you are more introverted and inflective reflective and you want to just sit in the presence of God and be still, I want you to hear that's good as long as you're doing it before the Lord. Others of you, God help you in a Baptist church. You're more expressive. You want to lift your hands. You want to hold them up. Do it as long as you're not distracting those around you. And you probably know what I mean. We can go too far with that and it becomes about us rather than focusing on the Lord. And some people who lift their hands look at those quiet ones and go, what's wrong with them? And I can tell you for sure the quiet ones look at the hand raisers and go, what is wrong with them? Does it really matter what you do as long as you do it before the Lord? And then David worships with all his might. Here's where I want to explore emotions and the part they play in worship. Listen to me very carefully. Emotions are uncertain, aren't they? Let me ask that again. Emotions are uncertain, aren't they? And too often we idolize our emotions and we go, ah, I just don't feel like worshiping today. And so we don't. It ought to be the other way around. Our emotions should not determine our worship. Our worship should train our emotions. And so when we come to worship, I tell you what, one of the best times to come to worship is when you don't feel like it. Because if you feel like it, it's really no sacrifice on your part. But if you say, and I've had those mornings where I get out of bed and gravity feels like three times normal. Okay, I'm going. I don't feel like it today. But what I do is I begin to praise and adore. To praise God for what He has done. And I hope you bring at least a mental list with you every week on what God has done that you can praise Him for. And we adore God, thanking Him for who He is. And pretty soon... Our worship is guiding our emotions rather than the other way around. And I actually would encourage you not to seek emotions in worship. When they happen, they happen. When they don't, that's okay too. If every worship experience is all about the emotions, you know what happens? We begin to worship the emotions and not God Himself. So we are called to worship before the Lord with all of our might. And then while he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. I don't know how many thousands of times that I've worshipped. I don't know how many thousands of times I've gone into a church. It's like if, you, if I do the numbers on how many meals I've eaten, I crunched the numbers on that this, this week. I've eaten about 60,000 meals in my life. I haven't missed very many meals. I don't know how many times I've been in the presence of God in worship. Most of them I've forgotten as I've forgotten all the meals that I've eaten. But one I will remember. It was on a Sunday night. Nobody talked to me about wanting to have church on Sunday night again, but it was on a Sunday night in my home church in San Angelo, Texas. 
There was nothing spectacular about that evening. It was raining outside, I remember that, because in West Texas it doesn't rain very often. It was raining outside. I remember the hymn we were singing. The pastor had preached a sermon that I don't even remember what he talked about. But as we sang this closing hymn together, something happened. It was an awareness that I was there and that he was there. And I can't fully explain this, but my eyes were closed, and I felt as though if I opened my eyes and turned, I would have seen him. I can't explain that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. But when we come to God in reverence, here's what he gives us. And you see the word in the second half of this, as David was dancing before the Lord, he was rejoicing. We leave this place rejoicing in God, our rock, and our Redeemer, from whom all blessings flow. And we come to Him because we're hungry. I would invite you to take your communion elements with me. Let's go ahead and do all the unwrapping. Open up the piece of bread if you would. Put that in your hand, turn it over, open up the cup. As we do that, I want to explore one word. It's the word companion. It's a pretty common word. We use that quite a bit, that somebody is your companion. I want to break that word down for just a minute. Um, com means with, and panion is the root word for bread. You heard of panera and panini, right? It's bread. A companion is with bread. It's somebody who you break bread with. It's somebody who you're comfortable enough to share a meal with. Jesus invites you to be his companion. Jesus invites you to break bread with him and to know him as your forgiver and your friend. I often say this, but you do not need to be a Baptist or a member of this church to take communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to this table. And we come because we're hungry. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples then and the disciples today take the bread together. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns for us again. And the disciples then and the disciples today take the cup together. Father, we come to you because we are thirsty. We come to you because we are famished. The world often leaves us empty and dry. But thank you that as we walk through life, we don't walk alone. As we take every six steps and take that seventh step, we have a companion, one who holds on to us no matter what. We love you, and thank you for allowing us to stand in your presence, to open our hands, to kneel down, to join you at the table. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our worship leaders to come and 
We're just going to sing a simple song of confession. We've talked about worship. Now's your chance to practice this. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will not let go. We're not going to open up the follow-up room right now. I'm just going to ask you to be in the presence of God, to worship Him together, and we'll open up the follow-up room here in just a moment. Jeff, lead us. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, and may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.